I'm Jessica Peresta, host of the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, do you like awesome rings? Do you need a ring to replace one that you lost ages ago? Or... Do you need a new wedding band because yours is no longer fixable? Well, (laughs) I have this cool sponsor, Boone Titanium Rings. They can be found at boonrings.com. They make their rings from titanium, and you can get the rings carved, engraved, inlaid, laser cut. There's even special collections like the Hunter Series or the Gamer Rings or the Black Zirconium. Very cool. They have models that have meteorite, wood, or other inlays. Check out boonrings.com. And at checkout, use the code for my podcast. It's capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, and the number 12, T-L-L-K-12, and you will get 10% off the total, and you will help this podcast out. Thanks so much. I love my ring, and I know you will love yours. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Kathy J. Forty. She was a clinical psychologist for over 30 years, a journalist, an associate producer for TV, an explorer, a keynote speaker, and an author. She has created uh, several nonfiction books, but today I'm focused on her new sci-fi thriller novels, Stacks, The Library of Truth, and Stacks, Awakening Truth. Awesome books, kept you wanting more, awesome conversation. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, it would be so cool if you uh, rate and review my podcast. Could you do that for me? You know, you could go to my website at stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and uh, that'll link you uh, to a couple of different ways that uh, you can uh, review the podcast, or you can go into Apple and uh, and do it that way or into the platform that you listen to me on. That'd be so cool. That helps us get discovered. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Milletto. Kathy Forty, Ph.D., is the author of a newly released truth book series, Stacks Library of Truth and Stacks Awakening Truth, a sci-fi thriller which takes place in Washington, D.C.'s Library of Congress, where a library employee accidentally opens up an interdimensional portal into a library within a library where all truth is is stored cool stuff. Prior to penning her novels, she was a clinical psychologist with over 30 years of experience in the mental health field. Her knowledge of psychopathology adds unusual character depth to her stories. As a direct result of her own near-death experience in 2003, where her heart stopped, Forty became more creative. This led to the development and patent of the Trinfinity 8 and Ascension 11 energetic software technology now used by holistic healing practitioners worldwide. With a degree in journalism, she worked for several years as an associate producer for CBS TV. She also wrote a TV pilot script for Stax that won a Slam Dance Teleplay Award, and uh, she launched with the help of Pacific Rock Productions, uh, which was led by an Emmy-winning producer in an original 11-part web series called Stax, The Truth Can Kill You. 
She has authored a nonfiction book as well, Fractals of God, a psychologist's near-death experience and journeys into the mystical, and a children's book series, Freddie Brenner's Mystical Adventures. Forty is a blogger and was a keynote speaker for Nexus Magazine in Australia in 2010 and 2015. She addresses subjects related to health, consciousness, spirituality, and the weird and wonderful. For years, she has been leading ancient mystery school groups to Egypt, having explored the water tunnels under the Great Pyramid, as well as closed-off tunnels under the Sphinx. Sometimes referred to as a female Indiana Jones after finding alien artifacts in Mexico, she is, at heart, an ancient explorer of the origins of humanity. Born in Chicago, Kathy has called many cities her home, including New York City, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Kansas, and Prescott, Arizona. She currently resides in Maui, Hawaii. For uh, more information, please go to her website at StaxLibraryOfTruth.com, and I'll have that information in the show notes for you. Kathy, thanks for joining me today. Great to have you on the show. Oh, hi, everyone, and hi, Steve, and thank you for inviting me. This is a real treat. Well, glad that you joined us, and this is cool, and your books are awesome. I enjoy it right up my, right up my alleyway, the, the type of stuff, right. mixing, you got a history, and you got sci-fi, and then you just got this cool old stuff that, uh, it's, it's got to hide some secret someplace, that Library of Congress thing, you know, um, <laughs> great place to hide something right in the open. So, um, but uh, Kathy, before we get into your writing, could we first talk about, I mean, you were a clinical psychologist in the field of mental health for 30 years prior to writing your novels. Could you talk about what, if any, lessons learned or influences that impacted your writing from this career path? Well, Steve, my life reads like a sci-fi novel. And, you know, I've attracted the unusual and experiences and the weird. And people have said, you know, it's a good thing you've got a Ph.D. after your name because you can make the strangest stuff sound normal. <laughs> and uh, I had I had clients that uh, I attracted um, unusual uh, psychopathology of clients. I did a lot of dissociative identity disorder, which at one time was called multiple personality disorder. And uh, these clients taught me a lot about the workings of the brain and how much we don't understand about human nature and so forth. But I had this one client and she had told me she had a near-death experience. And she said, uh, oh, I went through the tunnel of this light and I went to this place where I could read up on everything, you know, and it was all true. And I and I remember saying at the time, kind of like a library of truth. And she said, yeah. And that must have stuck in my subconscious because it 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 was it came back to me a number of years later after that experience talking with this woman. But you know, I I really learned to be the best therapist by working with these very very unusual clients. And I like to know you know that that I brought some of this ability into my characters as well in the books. That's so cool because that's that's a great. There's a lot of great experience right there to help you create characters. I can imagine. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, good stuff. I, all right. So the historian and lover antiquities in me just cannot pass this up. I mean, could you talk about exploring the tunnels under the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx? I mean, what? that's cool. <laughs> well, yeah. I The first time I tried going to Egypt was uh, 2011, and it happened right before the Arab Spring uprising. I thought in my mind, they couldn't have waited another month because <laughs> nice, everything nice. got canceled. Yes. And so I couldn't get back to Egypt till 2014. And I was with uh, three other people alone for about two hours in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. 
And so I just, uh, you know, got into the sarcophagus there or the stone thing. It's really no bodies have ever been found in there. And because it's this wonderful sound chamber, I just started uh, toning and feeling the vibrations through my body. And no sooner did I do that, in my mind's eyes, I saw a coffin lid slam shut on this thing. Now, there is no coffin lid in that place, but I saw it and I had this momentary panic that I'm being buried alive. And I heard, you know, as clear as can be in my head, you know what to do. And I realized I did. I slowed down my breathing and I actually had an out-of-body experience. And I found myself lifting out of my body and it was like this giant hole in the sarcophagus open and suddenly I was traveling down it. And I was this thought was, shouldn't I be traveling up it? You know, going up rather than down. But as I went down, I saw that that I saw lots of different things inside the Great Pyramid, but I saw that there was water tunnels underneath it. And underneath that was what looked like the remains of the city. So when I got together with some of my Egyptologist friends there, I said, listen, I really want to get down into these the, under the under the Great Pyramid. And I said, how can we arrange this? So they started the negotiations between, you know, the head of the Giza Plateau. They said, no, you know, we offered them money. We found the right price. You know, all hands can be greased, you know, and you can get what you want. <laughs> and finally, they agreed because this these tunnels hadn't been open since discovery in 1952. And they wanted to know how I knew about them. Of course, I didn't say um, that I had seen them in this out of body experience inside the Great Pyramid. So uh, in, uh, it was, uh, what year was it? It was about 2019, I finally got to go down there, uh, 2014, excuse me, got to go, uh, go down there. And um, uh, the, it, it was about, I had to go down about 125 feet below the surface. There was three different levels. The first level had pretty much nothing, but it had this rickety ladder, you know, that I didn't even know would hold me. And I'm going down there with the head of the Giza Plateau and my Egyptologist friend and then we went down another set of rickety lad uh, iron ladders to the second level where there was all these seven niches where sarcophaguses were. And most of them were empty, but there was two still there, very uh, two of them were open, no lids on it, nothing inside. And then we went down to the third level and there was water lapping around our feet and down there, you know, were the water tunnels. And I could see uh, where in 1952, an Egyptologist had built kind of like a little uh, pier in there so that they could research. And underneath the water was this buried sarc stone sarcophagus and with ancient writing on it and everything. And I turned to the guy, the Giza Plateau, I said, does anybody ever open this? He goes, no, we can't open it. And I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> I didn't weave that into stacks. But I could see the tunnels, and it was like maybe up to my hip, the water or so. And it was strange. I didn't tell anybody, but I was I was prepared to take specimens, water samples, to have them analyzed at a lab back in California. So I did, and I whipped it out and took pictures quick before anybody could stop me. And as I'm trying to get stuff out of my backpack, my card key that I was staying at the Mina house next to the, the pyramids, and it flit, It actually flew out of my bag. Now, usually if you drop something, it goes flat, you know, down to the ground. This flew out of my bag and landed right on the sarcophagus underwater. And they couldn't get it. Wow. And the guy 
took something and tried to get it back and it went deeper and deeper. So I figured some years from now, somebody's going to wonder whose hotel <laughs> card key this was. <laughs> and it was under there. But when I started doing, I started doing research, I found that most of the great pyramids in the world have water tunnels built under them. Chichen Itza, uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico, uh, the Bosnian pyramids. And so it makes you wonder what, was the purpose of all this. And and the water samples did show that there was uh, salinity in the water. And, uh, you know, the Nile River, if the if people said, oh, it must have been the Nile River. The Nile River is a freshwater river, and it's pretty far from the ocean. So that left another mystery, where was the salt water coming from? So, you know, we, it, it started a whole thing. And then, then awesome. I had to get under the Sphinx because I saw when I had that experience, not only the water tunnels, but I saw tunnels that the Sphinx and how they originally entered through the Sphinx to go into the Great Pyramid. So, um, you know, now this was unofficial. <laughs> there was a little opening that somebody pried open. <laughs> I won't talk to say who it was, but I, I was small and I was the only one that was able to crawl down there, down the ladder into this. And I only went about mm, seven or eight feet before it was blocked off. But there was tunnels there at one time. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, I, so I can technically say I've been inside the ass of this thing. <laughs> Nice, very nice. I like that. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> so, that's too cool. All that. I mean, talking about explorer in, colonoscopy, you might <laughs> yes, say. Yes. They, they, well, you went there. Okay. So <laughs> um, that is that is awesome. What an incredible experience um, doing all yeah. that stuff. That's uh, and it, um, just, just a note. Now, I wonder if you start some new. Uh, thought that they can say that, you know, once in a while, the, the, uh, the, the, the person who's in that uh, sarcophagus, sarcophagus gets up and goes to the, the motel because he decides he wants a regular shower. So <laughs> we, we, we leave him the card for that just in case. <laughs> well, I still, to this day, and this is what I've seen, but of course the Egyptology, the, you know, the head of the Egyptology and, and uh, antiquities department will never do it. But I think the capstone, the original capstone, is right inside the Great Pyramid because I saw something uh, above the Grand Gallery buried uh, that that is hidden there, and this it's got a um, uh, a corbelted ceiling that doesn't quite mesh up there uh, for how corbelted ceilings should the joints should uh, should coincide together. So I, I think there's more hidden in there that we have yet to discover. But you know they'd have to do some demolition to actually find it, and they're not going to do that. Right. That's, oh, that's awesome. Talk about inspiring all kinds of other things. I mean, just to, what you're writing and looking into, that's good stuff. So, so let's shift to your writing. I mean, we're focused today on your two novels, Stacks, Library of Truth and Stacks, Awakening Truth. And here's a little bit about Stacks, Library of Truth. Uncovered in the Library of Truth are the goods on all world leaders, politicians, businessmen, and all those in global power positions. Everything they ever did is on record, even the things done in private that no one witnesses. This unique library also contains a file on every person, alive and dead, that ever walked the face of the earth. When Zach, the unsuspecting library employee, attempts to expose the crimes of a power circle and control of the Library of Truth, the power denizens of the nation's capital cause mayhem and murder. Zach, by becoming the deep throat to a Washington, D.C. television reporter, puts himself in grave danger. The more he finds out about the Library of Truth, the deeper the rabbit hole gets. So before we go any further, you give credit to your creativity coming from a near-death experience. Could you talk about that? 
Uh, yeah. Well, I wrote a book about it, Fractals of God, a psychologist's near-death experience and journeys into the mystical, uh, because a lot of people wanted to know about it. And, you know, my experience happened while I was uh, uh, in uh, 2003, and I was seeing clients, and uh, um, I was leaving work one night after uh, a Buddhist nun, which was my last client of the day, said, ah, this is the night of the Wiesak moon. It was like May 8th. And and I said, well, what's that? And she said, it's when the veils between heaven and earth are very thin and anything can happen. And I remember thinking, okay, that's great. You know, <laughs> and so I'm walking to my car and I just happened to look up at the moon thinking like it looks like any other moon to me. But all of a sudden I had this whoosh feeling right out of my solar plexus area. And I suddenly felt very, very, very different. And I felt like I was done with my work here on Earth as I knew it. And that's the strangest feeling you could possibly have. It was like all my old friends had left and I was somehow changed. And I couldn't figure out what this was. I went home and I thought about it. And I was sitting there on the couch and suddenly I saw this swirling vortex in my head. And I didn't know at the time I passed out because my heart had stopped. And I found myself propelled through this tunnel and really as fast as could be i could see light at the end of the tunnel and of course i thought oh is this the tunnel everybody's talked about did i just die what did i die of? Right, i wasn't right. sick <laughs> you know and but you know i thought well if i can't do anything about it let's just keep going and see what it's about but before i could go into the light i came to a screeching stop and i remember trying to will myself into, <laughs> into it to see what it was about and i couldn't do anything and then as i thought I thought to myself, because I'm always like, I said, well, this is boring. <laughs> and, and all this energy poured into me and spun me back around, you know, as fast as could be feet first, you know, you know, like a, like I was on a conveyor belt or something back through the tunnel as fast as could be. And voices in my head were saying, breathe, Kathy, breathe. And of course I was alone. And I, you know, here, when you're a psychologist and you hear voices, that's not a good thing. So, um, you know, but there was nothing I could do when I got back into my physical body. My whole left side was paralyzed and I couldn't move. So I, I listened and, and they said, relax, everything will be OK. And I felt I felt some being or some force clicking all the parts of my left side of my body back into place. And and there was still a little heaviness in my chest. And I said, uh, Oh, God, I'm thinking now I'll have to go see a cardiologist. And they said, no, everything will be okay. But within 24 hours after coming back, I was obsessed with quantum physics. I was obsessed with creativity. I was obsessed with inventing things. And so, you know, that's that's the short version. And from there, you know, it's sort of like one thing led into another. You know, I invented technology that is used around the world, as you said, True Infinity 8 and Ascension 11. And then when COVID happened, I thought uh, I'd already had this, you know, idea in my mind. I thought it's time to sit down and write these books. And um, I was a little afraid. You know, I thought uh, maybe I just won't be able to do it justice. I'd never written novel, like an adult novel. And um, so uh, I found that it was just flying off, you know, uh, my keys were just flying over the the uh, the keyboard, and it just was a story that wanted to be told. And just to back up just a little bit, you know, 
I had a dream about this story and I woke up in the middle of the night and it was a number of years before I actually wrote it. And uh, I had the whole plot in my head, all the story points. And I, it was like 2 a.m. in the morning and I just felt like I couldn't go back to sleep until I started writing some of this down. And I did. So <laughs> thanks for telling us. You that. never know where you're going to be inspired from. It's like right. unbelievable, but go with it. Well, that's that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing that story. And it's, uh, um, you know, and it kind of <laughs> helps lead into my next one, which is literally, uh, um, you know, so with Stack's uh, Library of Truth. I mean, um, do you remember what made you say, I mean, because now you've talked about what, you know, where the, the story's coming from. It's kind of entered in and you kind of had all these ideas and the plot and thoughts in your head. Um, but what made you write it? What made you just say, what, what was that inspiration that said, all right, I'm going to get it done. Well, uh, I have to go back to, um, you know, I, I know you're probably going to ask who's inspired me over the years, and I'll just get to one of them. I had, um, when I was living in Los Angeles, I decided to take a, you know, television pilot writing course. Everybody does. Everybody writes a script in L.A. And I thought, <laughs> well, let's let's see what that's like. You know, I've written other things. So um, I had this teacher. It was the UCLA Extension Writers Branch, and his name was Bill Taub. And uh, he's like written the definitive book on writing pilots and everything. And uh, he said, you know, this is a really great story. You've got something here. And he said, sometime you should consider making this into a full-fledged book. And of course, you know, I tabled that thought thinking like, I don't have time to write novels, you know. And uh, but when COVID came around, I suddenly had time. Excellent. That's, uh, yeah, see, that was a that whole problem was helped in different ways. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So he pushed me at it and uh, you know, it's sort of like, I may not get around to doing things immediately when people tell me, but you know, it does get stuck in there and I think about it and when I'm ready, you know, everything about life is in timing and it was the right time then, you know, gotcha. So, gotcha. Very cool. Uh, all right. So I'm going to read from uh, the book. I'm going to do this a couple times here. Um, Stunned, Zach looked back at the black hole he had just emerged from in time to see it close up, leaving a solid metal wall in its place. No doorways, no handles, not a trace of what had just been there. So talk about what's going on here. I love the way you create images. <laughs> well, people have said when I read your book, it reads like a movie. Nice. <laughs> you know, it's very visual. Yes. And I, I'm a very visual person and I write to please me. And, uh, you know, if I can get into it without, you know, like, 10 pages of flowery, you know, description, which kind of turns me off. And, and, and so, um, you know, not to get into portal dynamics and everything, but uh, Zach does discover a portal, you know, and then he discovers there's more than one portal. And what does he, what is his job in dealing with all these portals? So it's, uh, you know, it's like I said, the rabbit hole gets very deep. It went into two books. And, you know, now I'm reading the third book in the series, which I believe is going to be the last book. And um, and so I didn't know where I knew where the storylines were. By the way, I write all my books at Starbucks. <laughs> you know, it's excellent. Like, excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's, the baristas come and they deliver my my, you know, my my order to my table now. And they all know I'm writing and they, they've written they've read some of the books and so forth like that. So, yeah, you actually had table service at my Starbucks. That's nice. And, I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, they know I stay there, spend a couple hours there. I was yeah, like, that's... I, I, I wanted to be like Stephen King. Stephen King's, well, not I'm not like him per se, but 
he I read read somewhere that he wrote between three and five pages a day religiously. And I said, well, if I can do that, I'll I'll aim for three to five pages. And a number of times, you know, I went over five pages a day. And so it's, you know, structure and discipline. And uh, so um, I forgot what was the question. That's right. I, read, I, I, I was going to ask you if you tell what's going on there. You're, you're starting to tell them about the uh, about the part that I read, which is him coming through the portal and then seeing what was there. Yes. I mean, you know, if you came through a portal, I mean, actually, I have come kind of through a portal like in Egypt. You know, you usually things usually happen when you least expect it. If you try to make it happen, it just usually doesn't happen. And so you it's best to stay in this neutral idling state. But, you know, he's his character is very unusual and quirky, too. He has uh, acquired savant syndrome which means uh, this came from a baseball injury in Little League when he was young and got hit in the head. And um, it changed the way he thought. And he sees everything in numbers. He's got synesthesia. And uh, for those who don't know, you know, sometimes people who have synesthesia can see people as colors. They can see Oliver Sacks, the uh, neuropsychologist um, uh, or psychiatrist, wrote the book, the, the, the Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. You know, these are all really unusual psychopathology. So his ability to see numbers actually can be a curse, but yet a blessing for what he's trying to learn and discover. And that's how he uses that ability to open this portal, not thinking, knowing that it's going to actually open a portal, but that uh, he's trying to do it for another purpose, not to give away the plot. And that's where life takes him into this portal of truth and like the record keeper, reading the record keeper and trying to figure out his own destiny, his own mission in life. What does this mean and how can he keep himself alive and safe in trying to reveal what's in the library of truth to the rest of the world? Awesome. It's just, it just makes you want to go, okay, I got no more. All right, what's getting ready to happen? So I love it. And, <laughs> so in the middle of the story, so I'm going to read again from, from your book. In the middle of the story, a character comments, I've never seen this part of the library before. And I just, I just did that part because you're talking about the Library of Congress. And I can only imagine if anybody's seen, you know, it's one of those things that you can only imagine uh, what stuff they have in there and what stuff they've forgotten they have in there. And are there any secret tunnels that go anyplace else? And so you're, you're centering around that in, its, in itself. And, I, and this character comments that I've never seen this part before. So when you were researching your story, you had access to Library of Congress. Could you talk about that, that access? I mean, what was that like to be able to be there? Like that. Well, in 2020, in the beginning of 2020, I got this really strong intuitive hit that I needed to get myself to the Library of Congress no later than the first week in March of that year. And I was leading a group in Egypt and I thought in February and I thought, well, what's the big rush? Okay, I'll I'll book a ticket and go there and uh, stay a week and do some research and uh, got in touch with the librarians of the main reading room and um, some of the other people that work there. And the, the interesting thing was that I got to spend not only the whole week there, but the week after I left, the whole country shut down for COVID and so did the Library of Congress. Wow. And so if I had not followed that intuitive hit, I never would have got to experience this. So the head of the uh, main reading room, which is the, that big octagonal, rotunda, uh, which, you know, you need a reading card to get into it. You can't just wander in like the rest of the Library of Congress. Right. So, uh, you know, 
the uh, main reading room librarian actually took me in there. She took me around, explained everything, and she took me into the closed stacks, which nobody has access to unless you're a library. And this is what I really wanted, because I wanted to get everything right in the book so that if an employee of the library ever read this, they think, oh, how did she know that? <laughs> or instead of saying, well, this is not how it works, you know, so I wanted to be accurate back from my old research and days at CBS News, you know, you always do your research, make sure it's accurate. And of course, things I had to change because I, you know, what I assumed would, would be it like it wasn't totally like and, it, you know, true, it's as cold as a meat locker back there uh, to preserve <laughs> to preserve all the manuscripts. And it's not as beautiful as the architectural, you know, uh, awesomeness of the rest of the library. It's pretty cut and dried with stacks upon stacks, you know, metal stacks. But it has one area that has nothing but wooden uh, drawers, like uh, catalog drawers, the old file card catalog drawers. And when you go inside, they're all written in ink. You know, in this kind of scroll script that goes back to, I mean, uh, you know, the original Library of Congress went wow. back to 1800. So, you know, it was like it was like going down this tunnel of history. It's like, wow. You know, and she kind of sh so I, I was going through it like I was, you know, seeing my character, Zach, working back here. And, you know, what that must have been like finding this library hidden within another library. And so I wrote some of the first chapter of the uh, Stacks Library of Truth within the main reading room just to get the feel of it. And I remember looking up at this, this elaborate gold clock with Father Time on it on the wall, and it wasn't keeping correct time. And um, I thought, well, why isn't somebody taking care of this? It should be keeping time <laughs> in the Library of Congress. And I, I asked uh, an employee, and he said, oh, that clock has never kept the right time. So I decided to weave it into the book. <laughs> you know, the fact why it wasn't keeping correct time. So, um, you know, so I always knew where the story points were in this book, where I was going with it, you know, and how complex the story would be. But sometimes in between those story points, I just, you know, I was amazed at what I was writing because I didn't know. And this is it kind of evolved on its I have to say, unlike a lot of writers with this book, I never had writer's block. That's you know, awesome. knock on wood. But <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, no. Yeah, just just the thought about it. I've been to Library of Congress, but I've never been beyond into the deep parts of it. And it would be so cool as the historian part of me would just I mean, I just oh, that would be so cool. But it also lends itself so well to you know, what could, could be back there. I mean, that's why there's been plenty of movies made about secret codes and all kinds of stuff that might be hidden. And uh, I just think it's powerful because it fits really well. It's a great place to, to start your, have your story. Well, well, I, I quite poked my head into every department there. I, you know, asked questions of everyone. I, I explored all the tunnels leading to the Madison building, the Adams building, the cafeterias underneath. I mean, it's a labyrinth underneath awesome. uh, the hill, you know, and to find your way around through all these places, because I knew, you know, the cafeterias, the vending machines, the coffee, everything's down there. And that Zach would be using it. And so I, I wanted to make it accurate. So, you know, I was doing it through the eyes of my character. And, and you know, people were telling me what it was like to work in the Library of Congress. And, and they loved it. And there's all this incredible um, masonry, uh, masic symbology all over. And I kept seeing these Minerva statues. And I'm thinking like, 
hmm, what's that about? You know, the goddess of war and and so forth like that and wisdom and peace. And and so I I included that in the books as well. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, so cool. All right. So I got to ask you. So what do you think? Is it uh, possible for the Library of Truth to exist? Well, um, you know, if you go back through a lot of ancient records, they talk about uh, the Akashic records, you know, uh, and Vedic um, scripts and so forth about there being possibly a life book on every individual out there. Now, I've never personally been to this Akashic records, but I kind of think that maybe there is there. And the thing is, if such a place really existed, it would it would totally nullify people's uh, desire to lie. You know, we because the truth would be out there. And, you know, I, I once I once the high school I went to, there was uh, one of my one of my colleagues, uh, uh, one of my other students, friends there who went on to be well known. And her name was Carolyn Miss from and she was uh, she's an intuitive medical psychic. And uh, but I knew her back then when we were in high school and she would tell you right away. She'd look around your field and she knew right away if you were lying. You know, she'd say, ah, it's yellow. You're lying. (laughs) You know, and I think that's what an Akashic record or a library of truth would. People wouldn't need to lie because they would always know what, uh, you know, where, uh, what was right and what was wrong. Wouldn't that be a wonderful life to live in, you know? (laughs) We wouldn't need, wouldn't need the Pinocchio syndrome. Yeah, no Pinocchio stuff here. I I don't know. This would be a little scary, especially because, you know, if, if something like that, uh, uh, people wanted to erase it or get rid of it or something like that, you might uh, <laughs> be an interesting No world, secrets. So. No secrets, exactly. <laughs> no uh, cover-ups. <laughs> no cover-ups. It would be awesome. Uh, so talk a little bit about how the news media and libraries play a vital role in the truths that we have that we, and that we know and that we hold sacred and dear well this is this is just my opinion but you know i think as uh you know we hear the narrative that uh, that the government or whatever wants us to hear and a lot of times it's very one-sided opinion and when i was in journalism school at nyu back in the days you know my professors would drill into us you need to have both sides of the story in every article so and I don't see that these days, you know, it's unfortunate. I don't think journalism is what it used to be. And that's that's too bad, you know, because uh, now we're forced to sift the wheat from the chaff. What's the truth and what's not the truth? And I think as, you know, human beings, evolving souls, we all are struggling to to find the truth, uh, our own inner truth, as well as outer truth. And so that's part of the journey. And that's what I thought uh, my characters were discovering in the book as well, their truth. That's awesome. The, you know, it's, uh, so, so one of the things that makes me want to ask you is, uh, so are, are you really kind of writing about warning people about that role that big technology companies, um, can make since they are gathering all that data on everybody that's out there that uses any of their phones or any of their search mechanisms or anything <laughs> like that? Well, yeah, I, I, I think that's a whole can of worms and, you know, it's, well, we kind of know that maybe our government's been collecting all this stuff right, for years right, anyway. Right. But now, you know, now that we find out things like, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all these other companies and so forth like that, you know, have stored all of our messages and, you know, our our even our health data in some respects can be open to people's looking. And so it's been kind of weaponized and uh, it's unfortunate. 
So, you know, I don't blame people keeping their mouth shut, you know, and not always it's crazy. <laughs> giving all of their data. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's crazy. I, you never know where it's going to land up and in whose hands and how it may work against you. You got that right. Just a note, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a movie that I liked a bunch of years ago that uh, had uh, uh, Michael Keaton as Batman and Danny DeVito as Penguin and the Penguin has duck has taped all these all these shredded documents together and he holds them up to the politician to say, you know, you shouldn't really throw this stuff out. And you know, and it's <laughs> and and even though that's a story from a long time ago, I mean that's exactly what you're talking about is that uh, next thing you know is that uh, um someone they're weaponizing it and it's sad. So yeah. crazy yeah. stuff. These are these are interesting times we we chose to live in. You know, and uh, I I always say to people, I think this is kind of the age of discernment, you know, learning to kind of uh, listen to that small voice within and not all those loud voices on the outside that are telling you what to think and what to do and so forth like that. Because uh, uh, most of the time when that happens, you get in trouble. <laughs> you got that right. You got that right. So. So what do you what do you think? Why do you think uh, the idea that there might be a powerful inner circle um, running and maybe ruining the world going on. Why is that a popular topic? Do you think, or, or something that people like to possibly think is real? Well, you know, you always need conflict in every story. <laughs> and there are so many boogeymen in this world that it's not hard to, you know, I mean, people talk about the deep state openly now. Some call it the Illuminati. Some call it a lot of other things, you know, and so we know that there is something out there, you know, behind the scenes, maybe pulling the strings and making decisions. And maybe these aren't the elected officials that we put into office. And so, um, you know, you question and and if the, certainly if the facts don't add up, you question even more. And that's why so many people jump to conspiracy theory. And and I, I say, well, it's kind of funny. I think they're running out of conspiracy theories because a lot of them are not true <laughs> to be true. You know, profits. Right. That's the sad <laughs> thing. They're more profits. Yes. yes. It's, it's wild. So, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, do your own thinking. Uh, I wish they would teach that more in schools, critical thinking. Um, I don't think that there is enough of it, you know, um, you, you we just kind of take it at face value. Oh, this is how it is. Cause so-and-so said it's this way. Yeah. Do your research. You know, you might find that there's, there's a couple more opinions and ways to look at it. So you're so right. You know, it's one of those things. It's like one of the things I find myself constantly yelling <laughs> at the world, no matter what the report is, is that, okay, so where did you get these, where did you talk to these people? How many did you talk to? And, uh, did you talk to more than just that area also, you know, cause it's like, cause they reported as if everything's the, the truth. And you find out later. Yeah, this is just, it was convenient for you. Yeah. Pseudo truth, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, wow. Powerful stuff. All right. So, uh, um, can you give us a, a prequel to uh, a prequel? All right. I'm using film terminology here and books and stuff like that. Uh, can you give us a uh, synopsis of uh, Stack's Awakening Truth and then uh, maybe what the third one's going to be called? Uh, yeah, the, the Stack's uh, Awakening Truth just um, uh, takes off where book one ends and that Zach has discovered a pretty disturbing truth. And uh, it's very difficult for his mind to wrap around this truth that kind of shakes his whole world and um, 
so he's he's he he's lost. He's he's lost in another portal place until someone has to help retrieve him, get his memory back. And um, he does come back and he goes even deeper into the tunnel. And now he's trying to save the woman he loves, her, her young daughter, uh, the, uh, the television reporter, the gutsy television reporter who's, who's, you know, a recovered alcoholic. I mean, so he's, you know, he's trying to find out is, is his mission to save humanity, to save himself, to, to what, or is, is it even deeper than that? which, you know, goes into book three, which is uh, Stack's Truth Will Set You Free. And um, as I said, the, the plot is very complicated, but easy to read and fast to read. You know, it's a fast moving book. People, like I said, you know, they said, wow, you know, it kind of was a page turner, kind of kept me on my seat, you know, because I didn't know which way it was going this way, this way, that way, you know, but it yes. all made sense. And sometimes when I was writing it, I wasn't sure either. And then a couple pages into it, I go, oh, that's where it's going. Excellent. <laughs> Love it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, can't wait till the third one comes out. And if uh, I can get you back on the show when it's all set to, to go there, just let me know. Love to talk to you about that one as well. This is uh, good stuff. Uh, Kathy, before we close, if someone wanted to learn more, where would you send them? Well, uh, go to StacksLibraryOfTruth.com, or you can find both book one and book two on Amazon. It's in Kindle. It's in print. Uh, you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. And um, the Audible version is just being finished now for book one. So that should be out shortly. And uh, book three should come out this year. So, um, yeah, you can start with Amazon if your local bookstore doesn't have it or if you're at Barnes & Noble, tell them to order it. Excellent. Love it. And I will put information about your website and, and some of the places where they can pick it up in my show notes so they can find it there easily. Uh, all right. So, uh, Kathy, I got last two questions that I like to ask my guests. And the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Well, that's, that's a good question, because I think a lot of us have felt depressed at what, you know, direction our world is going these days. And, you know, I'm from the, you know, I'm not a religious person per se, but I, I'm from the school of um, what you'd call Mother Teresa, her thought. And she, what she would do, someone once asked her, you know, all these poor and sick people, how do you not get overwhelmed and just not be able to go on? And she thought about it for a moment. She says, I just look at the person in front of me and treat each person as they come and don't think about the rest. And I think that's all we can do is just take one day at a time. You know, don't try to, you know, send yourself in the future thinking like, oh, that's not going to work. This is not going to work. Oh, what was me? And so forth like that. Just keep going because perseverance does win out. And I really do believe truth will come out and truth does win in the end, but it may not happen immediately. And um, so that's my thoughts on that. Truth wins. <laughs> Love it. That's a great answer. I, uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, I think my first inspirational teacher was, um, his name is William E. Burroughs and Bill Burroughs. And he was my um, uh, journalism professor at uh, New York University. And he was the one that taught me uh, research, 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 always look up facts, get both sides, you know, and he inspired in me to write. He he at one time wrote for the New York Times, the uh, Washington Post. He was a real good news reporter. And this was like 
back in the 70s. I guess I'm dating myself a little bit here. <laughs> and and but he's written many books and um he was the first inspiration. And of course, then my uh um UCLA professor, uh Bill Taub, uh telling me, write the book. And then I have to just kudos out to uh, a history teacher of mine in high school. I don't remember her first name, but it was Miss Delaney. She came from uh, the historical family of Judge Delaney from the Salem Witch Trials. And um, she inspired me a love of world, um, uh, U.S. history, European history. She made it come alive. She always gave you the juicy facts on things. And, you know, most people say, oh, I hate history, you know, and I loved it because of Miss Delaney. Thank you to all of those three teachers for making my day and making my life. Oh, that's that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Kathy, it was awesome talking with you today. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your novels, Stacks, The Library of Truth, and Stacks, Awakening Truth. And looking forward to the third one coming out. Awesome stories, great reads, scary thoughts, by the way. Wishing you all the best. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.